Chapter 4 of Silly and Its Legends by Henry James Whitfeld. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. St. Mary's. St. Mary's is the capital, as it were, of the islands, and Hewtown is the capital of St. Mary's. Footnote. So named for the patron saint of the Abbey of Tavistock. Footnote ends. It is the most curious little place in the world. If Constantinople was originally called the City of the Blind, from the mistake committed by its founders in choosing for it the worst site in the neighbourhood, Hewtown has a fair prospect of being named the City of the Drowned, for such will certainly be its end. It lies low on a neck of sand between two inlets, or arms, of the sea, St. Mary's Pool and Porcrasa Bay. Footnote, variously spelled Porthcressa or Porthcrassant footnote ends, which are about 150 yards apart. The tide has several times broken over the narrow isthmus on which it stands, submerging the buildings that indeed scarcely are above its ordinary level. On Buzzer Hill to the southwest can be traced the winding valley from the old church to Hewtown, where is seen, written in bold characters, the inevitable march of the waters. At a day perhaps distant, perhaps very near, the garrison will form one islet, the high grounds of Buzzer Hill and the Peninus will become a second, leaving the mainland still further shorn of its fair proportions by their loss. The ocean is an invader not easily baffled or repulsed. Within the memory of man it has covered two fields near the town and has overflowed and well-nigh swept away the place itself. The inhabitants, meanwhile, sleep like Dutchmen under the shelter of their dikes. An Oriental never put greater faith in his kismet or destiny than a Salonian in his immunity from drowning. They admit the probability of an inundation, but then, to engulf them, it requires so many concurrent visitations, such coincidences of tide and wind and moon, that they are content to take things as they are and wait for their prospective ducking with the most edifying and well-bred tranquillity. Just so did the people of Old Port Royal, Jamaica, which may now be seen at low water, offering a warning which no one heeds. Nature thus gives many a lesson to the world, but the world is a pupil that too often slights and neglects its master. The people of Hewtown are said to be very plain-spoken. The following anecdote is not a bad illustration of their talent in this line. When the chaplaincy was vacant, a clergyman came to see how the situation would suit him. He did duty at the church. After service, the sexton thus addressed him. You won't do for the people here, sir. You reads too slow, and you keeps them in too long. As for the general capacity of this part of England, I heard a friend say, most irreverently, that the more he travelled in the West, the more was he convinced that the wise men really came from the East. And now, after this digression, I get again to Hewtown. I am not about to describe it, nor to write of silly in the fashion of a local historian. That task has been performed accurately and ponderously enough by no fewer than five authors, Heath, Troutbeck, Borlase, Woodley, and North. Their pages contain all that need be told, or learned, of the physical and moral state of these islands. Finding on my arrival here as a stranger the want of some simple and familiar guide, to the traditions and beauties of the silly group, I have endeavoured to supply the void for the benefit of others. I know nothing beyond what is on the surface, and I seek to record only my first impressions, 
of what I have seen and heard. I will add the results of my observations in a supplementary chapter, which may be perused or skipped at pleasure. Let me, en passant, enter my protest against the vast amount of unnecessary learning brought to bear on the names and annals of the islands. One writer in particular is so enamoured of the antique as to trace it in every phrase. Footnote. Palestri from Palestera, place of strife. Salaki from Salakeo or Sul, prey and Keo to dig. Flagon from Fligo to burn. And borrow from Pyramid. Footnote ends. A word is proved to be Greek, just as Fluellen proved the similarity of Macedon and Monmouth, because there was a river in both. An accidental coincidence in form or in sound may exist in languages far removed from each other. Many Saxon roots are found in Sanskrit, and there is no doubt that Sanskrit is the foundation of Saxon, but because an English word resembles Sanskrit, I do not conclude it to be necessarily Indian. The ancients traded with these islands, but they did not leave upon them the broad stamp of their language and their memory. Footnote. Porth, quasi-portus, bay, is the only classical root which I have found. Footnote ends. On the contrary, I do not believe that one Phoenician or Greek name can in reality be traced. It is the national peculiarity of the English to affix to the places they visit some appellation familiar, if not grotesque. One historian objects to Mount Flagon as an unmeaning designation and tries to prove it Greek. The next spot is Brimstone Hill. Another is Taylor's Island. Beyond is the Mare Rock. Adjoining it is Crow Sound. By a little ingenuity, I can make all of these Hebrew, but I prefer in taking them for what they really are. Hewtown, of which I have spoken twice before, is one of the most wrong-headed little places in creation, built as I have described it, with one long, low, straggling street, from which others branch off right and left. It presents no very tempting appearance until, at the upper end, there are seen some good houses and a very simple and handsome church, towards the erection of which... William the Fourth gave a thousand pounds. It was finished by the munificence of the proprietor. The aspect of the lower town is sufficiently miserable. On first walking through it, I was struck and amused by the word bank painted in capital letters upon a wretched hovel. Supposing the cottage to be the exchange of St. Mary, inhabited by the local Rothschild, I meditated a sketch of it, but on inquiry, I found that the name was that of the situation not of the house, which was built on rising ground. It was a warning to me and to all other sightseers to ask before we decide. The lower town is terminated by a pier, begun by the Godolphin family and finished by Mr. Augustus Smith. The shops are as good as might be expected and contain a little of everything, but the attendance is so dilatory that we are reminded of the stupid waiter in Punch, who was represented as exclaiming hopelessly, on receiving a peremptory order from a customer in a hurry, oh, it's all very well to say look sharp. There is a marketplace, which I mistook for a prison, and there is a real prison so little formidable that during my stay a man confined in it walked out and escaped by getting on board a vessel in the pool. A clergyman, who is chaplain to the proprietor, resides here, as well as a medical man of great ability, and there are some very respectable families in the place which, like Leghorn, is full of odd costumes and odd faces from the foreign vessels that are constantly touching here. Its name is derived from the word hugh, H-E-U-G-H, signifying a promontory in the sea. The inhabitants dress remarkably well, 
and the taste for finery is not confined to the adults. A friend of mine the other day met a little girl with a very smart black silk mantle. He said to her, "'My dear, what a very pretty polka you have got.' "'No, sir,' replied she, with a low curtsy, "'it is not a polka, it is a visite.' At the northeastern extremity of Hewtown is the garrison. It is about a mile and a quarter in circumference and rises at its highest point to somewhat more than 100 feet above the level of the sea. A broad road leads through the entrance gate to Stark Castle, so called from being built in the form of a star, or, as the heralds would emblazon it, an estoile of eight points. Footnote, it was erected in the reign of Elizabeth, whose initials, E.R., 1593, are over the door, and was originally called Stella Mariae. Footnote ends. Following the path, the opposite side of the peninsula is soon reached, through a fragrant wilderness of firs and heath, stocked with rabbits, and with a fine herd of deer. Seats are placed at intervals for those who love to linger amid scenes so fair. The charms dwelling on this spot and sanctifying it are not those of man's creating. The gloomy antique castle, the low dark batteries, with their complement of six invalid artillerymen, the dusky arch of the gate, have about them neither the spell of beauty nor of romance. The Red Cross banner of England, that waves from yonder flagstaff, floats over an empire upon which the sun never sets, but it has not flown, and will never fly, above a brighter or a lovelier view. Beneath is the noble bay, thronged with the shipping of all nations, which have been driven hither by the easterly winds. A belt of islands forms a frame to this characteristic picture of English rule, the blue waves rolling against their rugged outlines, and sparkling in gay contrast around their glittering white sands. The air is heavy with perfume from the blossoming firs. As you sit, enjoying silently the prospect, a fawn peeps at you from the break, and, after a moment's pause, bounds timidly away. Nature is here perfect in her grandeur. If a trace of man intrude itself upon your solitude, it comes with an interruption as unwelcome as it is abrupt. The hoarse bell of the watch-house startles you while it rings out the hour. Over the glorious expanse of the sea, a dismasted vessel comes lagging in with its tale of sorrow and pain. The fortifications, as they are called, date from some century back. I hope they were erected in the time of George II. He professed to hate poetry and painting, and I could believe it if the buildings on this hill were his handiwork. On leaving the garrison and crossing Pograsa Bay, you reach Buzzer Hill, from the summit of which there is a charming view. Footnote. Buzzer, that is Bozo Hill, so called from a family of that name. Bance Khan, Watts, Legs, Banfield, Tolls, Thomas have the same derivation. Footnote ends. A fine British barrow is to be seen here, two others having been destroyed to make room for a Spanish windmill, which occupies their site. One word as to this queer exotic of brick and mortar, it is not generally known that a Spanish windmill is but a Lilliputian compared with his English brother. The readers of Don Quixote are not aware that the knight, in attacking one, does not commit so monstrous an extravagance after all. Seen through the mist with its revolving arms of white lines, it would present no very inapt resemblance to the white-robed figure of a gigantic moor. But the hero of La Mancha needs no apology. Genius has made him immortal, yet he is invested with a painful greatness, and the interest with which he inspires us is, to me, melancholy and sorrowful. Byron has described it inimitably. Cervantes smiled Spain's chivalry away. 
a single jest demolished the right arm of his own country. Never since that day has Spain had heroes. While romance could charm, the world gave ground before her bright array, and therefore have his volumes done such harm that all their glory, as a composition, was dearly purchased by his land's perdition. Of all books, tis the saddest, not less sad, because it makes us smile. What a proof have we here of the spell exercised by genius over time and space. We are on a lone hill, surrounded, to all human seeming, by rocks and waves. In a moment, in a point of time, the mind journeys on its pilgrimage to the Sierra Marina, and brings the spirit of old Saradevra to commune with it above this silent and solitary khan. The roguish horse-dealer, boasting to Gil Blas of his honesty, protested that it was his lado mas flaco, his weakest side. Truly, if a man has in his nature a particle of romance, it is sure to find him out. It discovers for him kindred that he dreamed not of, and shows him his unguarded point, his own infirmity, even when he expects it least. Advancing to the south, you pass the Dutchman's Khan and reach Peninus Head, footnote Peninus, Head of the Islands, footnote ends. The rocks here are of extraordinary beauty. To an artist, probably, they have no rival anywhere in the island. They present every variety of form, from the broad, massy square, resembling the keep of a Norman hold, to the tall tooth rock and the pulpit, with its vast canopy of stone. The whole coast is striking and even sublime, Art, too, is not wanting in aid of its effect, for this spot, so full of natural grandeur, is pitched upon by antiquaries for the scene of one of their bitterest contentions. Here, in fact, are the celebrated rock basins. What are they? Are they accidental formations, or artificial? Are they cisterns, like those of the ancient Mexicans, or are they druidical remains? Are they for lay purposes, or for holy uses? Troutbeck and Bollet's attribute them to the druids, Davies Gilbert calls them supposed relics. North considers them a work of chance. I should say that there would not be a doubt about the matter to anyone but an antiquary, who is a misty kind of animal, tarnishing and obscuring, all upon which he lays his touch. Here, quoth Monk Barnes, waxing eloquent, as he described to his guest the imaginary Roman camp, here was the Praetorian gate. Praetorian here, Praetorian there, replied Eddie Ockletree. I mind wheel the big o' it. So is it with the rock basins. The rain has evidently decomposed the granite and formed in the course of ages these rounded cells, christened so loftily. At all events, common sense must settle the question, for history is mute, unless we can hope for such a solution as was once proposed by my old master Bishop Butler for a similar case. Shoebury School rejoiced in an interminable chancery suit, which could only be settled by the evidence of a certain abbot, who died three hundred years ago, and the bishop suggested that he should be summoned accordingly and either examined or pronounced contumacious, and so the matter would be finally arranged. Every island in the world, I believe, has its particular piper's hole. There is one here which is said to communicate with its grander sister at Tresco, so that a dog entering one passed out at the other. To be sure, they point different ways, but it is hardly fair to mar a tale of mystery by an objection so commonplace. Let us rather listen and walk on, gazing on the great south as it lies before us, darkly, deeply, beautifully blue, while we enjoy the majesty of these rugged piles around, which time's hand has hallowed, and endowed with a power such as he only can bestow. Beyond them the eye rests on nothing but the infinite of sky and sea, and upon the distance brooding over dim space, 
which is in itself sublime, like the spirit of God moving upon the face of the waters. After turning the extreme point of the island, you reach an irregular path which leads you to Old Town. It lies at the head of a little bay, on one side of which is a small deserted church, and on the other a large cluster of houses. This was the ancient capital of St. Mary's. Footnote, in perfect keeping with it, is an ancient kist vein built into the corner of an outhouse near the path. Footnote ends. Its aspect is that of sadness and decay. In such a situation, ruin is a fit dweller. One of the aged mariners inhabiting that grey group of dwellings might well say with Tennyson, And no more shall we roam, O oh, the loud hoar foam, from our melancholy home. On the limits of the brine, from the little isle of Hesperus, beside the day's decline. A respectable-looking man touched his hat civilly to me as I leaned upon the stile. I asked him to whom the castle, now in ruins, had belonged. "'I am sure I can't tell you, sir,' was the reply of the worthy Salonian. "'But it was destroyed by Oliver Cromwell. "'Here, afterwards at Briar and elsewhere, "'I was met by the ghost of the stern old protector. "'The fortress, a few stones of which are seen upon the rocky mound, "'was smitten by an arm more terrible than even his, "'by a power whose hand is a hand of iron and its blow is death. "'It has known no worse foe than time.' It was mouldering already in the days of Leyland, when the family of the king-killer bore the name of Williams, and ere his Welsh great-grandfather had assumed that of Cromwell, in honour of his patron, the Earl of Essex. Its stones were quietly removed in the time of Elizabeth, principally to build Star Castle. But even while we know this, we cannot shake off the spell of the mind. The Druid is still the ruler of these Carnes and Cromlechs. The spirit of old Oliver comes to brood, wherever death has been, grim, ghostly, impalpable, a principle rather than a real corporeal existence, seated always amid destruction, like Aramanes on his throne. When I got back to my lodgings, the landlady's servant met me with the following questions. Pray, sir, would you like a chicken for dinner? By all means, if you please. Pray, sir, would you like it roasted brown on both sides? Footnote. Beyond Old Town, there rises abruptly from the sea a bold shelf of rocks called Tolman, or Tolman Head. Tradition says it was so named from a tax or toll being imposed upon all persons who landed there. This custom, and an incident connected with it, form the subject of the following tale. End of chapter 4. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.